Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulu University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. And I'm Vivek. And there's no Dan today. It's actually just us two. Uh, Dan decided he wanted to go on vacation. So Dan is on a plane going somewhere. This is pretty typical Dan. You know, we start a new series. We're doing something. This happened with, with, with lung cancer. I'm going to just say it happened with myeloma, even though it didn't. Dan, we're, we're disappointed in you. Disappointed, Dan. Well, but that being said, Dan, you are missing a big day. We are at our first episode of our next big series, this time going into into breast cancer. You know, this is another really big topic in hematology and oncology, an area that, you know, I find extremely confusing. And so I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks, really breaking breast cancer down as we have with all of our series so far, so that us as fellows can walk away with the information that we need to know. And anybody listening to our show can walk away with the information that they need to know to look after patients with breast cancer. This series is going to be critically important, and any community oncologist, any fellow, any internal medicine doctor, surgeons, we really go through the the important details in breast cancer. And if you are not interested in the medical oncology side of things, we still highly, highly recommend that you listen to these first several episodes on this. We have a lot of special treats for you in this series, and it, and we spent a long time planning, and this first episode is just amazing. We start off with breast radiology, and we have a fantastic expert discussant with us who uh, is at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, she is incredible, and, and Ronak, I'll let you take it away from there. Yeah, so, so Dr. Yasha Gupta, who you'll hear from in just a few moments as we roll to the actual show, she's about to finish her breast imaging fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, just on the heels of becoming an attending, and this episode was, was phenomenal. So we're so excited that she's going to be our guest to kick off our breast cancer series. And, you know, once again, highlighting that the care of our patients with, with cancer is a multidisciplinary approach, and that's really what we're trying to emphasize in these first few episodes. But guys, before we get to the episode, just really, really, really quickly want to remind you all about the basics of breast cancer screening. We don't go into that in detail in the episode, so I just want you to remember the American Cancer Society recommends that women age 45 to 54 get yearly mammograms, and then that they continue getting every other year mammograms from year 55 and up until their life expectancy is expected to be less than 10 years. So that is super important for us to know. Yeah, and, and you'll see different recommendations from different societies. The USPSTF recommends from the ages of 50 to 75 that we do every other year mammograms. We won't get into the details on that. That'll be saved for a different episode. But we just want you guys to know that screening recommendations can vary. Check out the NCCN guidelines for special cases, those patients who have BRCA mutations, high-risk patients. Those patients may also need a breast MRI as part of their screening regimen. But again, We'll link to our show notes, the NCCN guidelines for those special scenarios, but we just really want to right now focus on the important details and practical implications in breast radiology. That sounds awesome, Vivek. All right, guys. Well, without further ado, let's roll that show. 
Guys, we're so excited for the first of our Breast Cancer Series episodes. We have with us a special guest all the way from New York City, Dr. Yasha Gupta, who is a breast imaging fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Yasha, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And we hear that you're just on the verge of starting your, your new job as an attending. And are you so excited about that? Yeah, you know what? I'm so excited, but I'm so nervous. You know, making these decisions by yourself with nobody checking your work, it's so scary, but I'm excited to have that autonomy after so many years. I also happen to notice that you also chair the American College of Radiology section for for trainees, for residents, fellows, and students. How is that going? That sounds like an awesome opportunity as well. Yeah, you know, throughout my residency, my career, I've been really interested in getting trainees involved with all of these organizations like ACR and RSNA, which are our big radiology organizations. And I've just met so many amazing people while I've been doing all of this. It's really fun. I tell all the trainees that I meet, like get involved with advocacy and whatever. You're going to meet so many cool people. You're going to get exposed to so many opportunities, things like this, you know, they don't happen unless you meet people. So I love it. I think it's been an amazing experience for me. And I encourage anyone listening to get involved with their own organizations too. Yeah, it's, it's super important. And, you know, for us, I'm definitely not involved in any of this stuff, but Ronick is. So Ronick's our guy to to do all this. I'm just the person who watches reality TV and, and, I, and I'm going to stick with that. I'm definitely sticking with that. There needs to be somebody for that, that area too, Vivek. So you do you. Yasha, something we always ask all of our guests uh, when they come on the show is to tell us a little bit about themselves. Um, and also, we always love to hear a fun fact about you. Okay, so a little bit about me. I guess I grew up in Michigan in the middle of nowhere. And I decided I wanted to leave. So I did residency in Boston. And now I'm here in New York City. And yeah, I've always been interested in radiology. I've been interested in women's health since medical school, and I thought OBGYN was not a good fit for me. So I ended up finding women's imaging, and it has been like the best decision I ever made. I have no regrets going into radiology. I love women's imaging, and I'm super excited to be a breast imager really soon. A fun fact about me is that I had a baby about a year ago now, which is insane. And I've been struggling through juggling work as a fellow and being a mom. And it's been a very interesting year. So that is my fun fact. It's a fun and important fact. It's it's so hard to do and so important to, you know, to talk about too. I mean, my wife and my wife's a, a GI fellow right now. And we've been talking about how are we going to balance all of this? You know, it's it's so hard. It's been like one of the hardest things I've ever done. I used to be able to come home and just like watch TV and, you know, who cares after residency, just come home and like do whatever you want. And now I come home and I'm like, okay, job number two begins now. And I have to start thinking about like his eating and sleeping. And yeah, it's been crazy. And I definitely understand the importance of like productivity now. I can't leave work until everything is done, which is totally different than how I was like even a year ago. Well, truly hats off to you for still being able to do all the things that you're involved in, even with, you know, being being a, a new mom and, and all that. And um, certainly from everything that I've seen and heard about you, and I found your YouTube page, it sounds like you're you're doing awesome things. So you're certainly making this look easy. You're too nice. Maybe that should have been my fun fact. I have a YouTube channel. <laughs> we'll post a link to that in our in our show notes. Uh, listeners, don't worry. 
All right. So let's go, let's go ahead and get started here. I'm going to start us off with a case, and then I'll ask Yasha a bunch of questions, and we'll go from there. I'm, I'm really excited to get into this, because I really think this is important for really anybody who's a surgeon or an internist or anyone in HEMOC, because this, this will apply. So let's say we have a 45-year-old woman who has never had a mammogram before. She has no known medical conditions and takes no medications. She has no family history of breast cancer or other breast abnormalities, but she noticed a new lump in her left breast over a month ago. She otherwise has felt well without breast pain or nipple discharge, and she underwent a diagnostic mammogram for this lump, and she was found to have a BIRADS 4C lesion. So that's kind of where we're at right now. So we'll start off with that case. But Yasha, the first thing I want to ask you is, what is the difference between a screening mammogram and a diagnostic mammogram? And, and how exactly does that work? Yeah, so that's a very good question. When you come to the radiology department, the difference is that a patient who has a screening mammogram comes in with no symptoms, right? She's just screening. So this is no symptoms, no breast pain, no palpable lumps. And she's just having her annual screening, which will consist of CC and MLO views. Those are the standard views that we get of the breast. It's bilateral. And if she has both breasts still, plus or minus TOMO, which we'll talk about later, that's a screening mammogram. So yes, CC and MLO views of both breasts, no symptoms. That's like basically what constitutes a screening mammogram. A diagnostic mammogram happens because either a patient feels something, the patient's doctor feels something, she's having nipple discharge, or we see something on a screening mammogram that we want to work up further. And then that patient would come back for additional views. If she already had the standard CC and MLO views, we don't usually have to repeat those. What we will do is get something called spot compression views, which means we're actually putting additional pressure on the breast to try to push something out. So it's a little bit complicated, but essentially it's additional It's additional imaging, additional mammographic views that give us more information to see if something really is a mass or if it's just overlapping fibroglandular tissue, which if you look at a mammogram, you'll see it just looks like glandular tissue. You're like, I don't know, is this a mass or is this just her normal tissue? And sometimes we need additional views to help us figure that out. So that's a diagnostic mammogram. It's just more views that we don't do on a screening mammogram. One of the things that you just mentioned there with with compression of the breast, and when you get that screening mammogram and you're getting that craniocaudal view and that medial lateral oblique view, is is there a technologist that's compressing it in a certain way? And then when you have the diagnostic, you then say, ah, that view is not right. Let's compress it slightly differently. Right. So that's a very good question too. So a CC and MLO view, actually, our so our technologists are super important. They play a huge role in this. They do position the patient, but our machines actually compress essentially on their own. And the technologist tells it like when to stop, when we feel like we have a good enough image. So the technologist positions the patient. When we call a patient back for an additional spot compression view, that's actually a like more pressure using a smaller paddle. So now instead of compressing the entire breast, we still compress the entire breast, but we put a specific paddle on the part of the breast that we're looking at. So what's important to know for a patient is like you might be waiting in the room for a while, but it's actually because a technologist is coming to the radiologist to see exactly where we want that additional compression to be, and then they'll go back and do it again. And we don't usually let the patient go until we've reviewed all the images and we feel like, okay, yes, this is exactly where we want it to see. Sometimes that takes two or three tries, and it can be kind of frustrating for the patient. I, I feel so bad, but they're often so patient with us. 
just so we can make sure we're in the right exact spot. It's fascinating to me because I think when I thought about this early on and and even even in medical oncology fellowship, when I went through this was, well, you know, the diagnostic mammogram, they're just getting different angles, but it's actually a huge interplay between the breast radiologist and the technologist and speaking with the patient. And it's it's really cool to hear that that's there's all of this stuff going on behind the scenes. So. With this patient, again, she gets this diagnostic mammogram. It's a BIRADS 4C. Can you talk to us a little bit about what BIRADS means? And, and you know, I what I what from my understanding, a BIRADS 4 is really heterogeneous grouping. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So it's a very good question. BIRADS stands for Breast Imaging Reporting and Data System. And essentially what that is, it's is our reporting guidelines for how we report and classify breast lesions. So anytime a patient comes in for a breast-related complaint, you will always see a BIRADS number at the bottom of the report. So you're asking about BIRADS 4. So what does that mean? Everything that comes through the Breast Imaging Center gets a BIRADS. So BIRADS 0, like this patient, she probably had a BIRADS 0 if she had a screening mammogram, means we need additional imaging. BIRADS 1 is negative. That means there's nothing on the imaging that needs further follow-up. BIRADS 2 means something is benign. So for example, a simple cyst, that means we see something, but it's benign. We don't need to do anything more. BIRADS 3 means probably benign. That's a less than 2% chance of malignancy. And those usually require about two years of follow-up. So we'll have patients come back every six months for two years to make sure that what we think is, quote, probably benign ends up actually being benign. BIRADS 4, it's categorized into A, B, and C lesions. So you may not always see 4A, 4B, or 4C. You can just see BIRADS 4 on its own. And that constitutes a 2 to 95% chance of malignancy, A being less and C being higher. And then BIRADS 5 is over 95% chance of malignancy. And then you might sometimes see a BIRADS 6, which is biopsy-proven malignancy. So that's how we classify things. And almost everything that we see already has a BIRADS like code, essentially. We know what it means. A fibroadenoma, for example, is almost always a BIRADS 3. Unless it's biopsy proven, then it's a BIRADS 2, for example. So our patient who comes in with a BIRADS 4C means that there's a high suspicion of malignancy. The radiologist is looking at the images and based on the imaging thinks that this looks suspicious and is really recommending a biopsy, which basically anything that's a BIRADS 4 or 5, which if you remember the numbers, that's anything with a greater than 2% chance of malignancy gets a biopsy. So there's a big range. Low suspicion things get a biopsy and very suspicious things get a biopsy. So Yasha, to to follow up on that. So if it's BIRADS 4 or 5, you know, we're not even going for that mammogram or that MRI as a next step. You are just already planning to get that patient to get a biopsy done. So every patient is different. I guess what I am trying to say is a patient who's a BIRADS 4 or 5 does not fall into a category of follow-up. We cannot just follow whatever they are, whatever we see, unless obviously the patient wants it, which would be against our recommendations. It's something that needs to be biopsied. Now, if the oncologist or the surgeon feels like before we do a biopsy, we want to do an MRI, maybe she has like some other symptoms or they feel something else somewhere else in the breast, then of course we'll proceed with MRI first, but she needs to get a biopsy at some point. 
And going along the lines of what you just said with the with the MRI and with needing to get a biopsy, let's say we have a, a, a patient that rolls through, like this patient, they have a BIRADS 4C lesion on a diagnostic mammogram. I want to back up a second. Let's say we have a patient with a screening mammogram, and let's pretend they have a BIRADS 4 lesion. We don't categorize A, B, or C. They have BIRADS 4. And uh, they see the surgeon, let's say, or the oncologist, and there's no no indication to get an MRI or nobody palpates anything differently. What do you think about when you go about getting a biopsy in these patients and, and what exactly do you guys do? So when we look at the imaging and we're deciding what type of biopsy we are going to get, we have to, we basically look at like what's the most cost effective and time effective way, like efficient way of getting this biopsy done. So ultrasound biopsies are the cheapest and fastest way to get a biopsy. And we have the most slots available like throughout the country, but at every institution, they'll have the most ultrasound biopsy slot. So if we see a lesion under ultrasound, then it's going for ultrasound biopsy. The next is mammographically guided biopsies, which we call stereotactic biopsies. Those are the second best way. And things like calcifications, which breast cancer often presents only as calcifications, they can only be seen with mammography. They won't be seen on ultrasound. Those patients will go for a stereotactic biopsy. And then MRI is kind of like the very last choice. So if we only see a lesion on MRI, then the patient gets an MRI-guided biopsy. And those take a lot of time. The patient has to get contrast to do the biopsy. They take longer. And the slots, there's just so few slots because MRI scan, like scanners are just, there's just not as many of them around the country. So when we can do ultrasound, we're very happy. And obviously, if you have to do stereotactic biopsy, that's also fine. The thing with MRI is it has, it's just very low like sensitivity. So you end up biopsying a lot of things that end up being benign, which is fine, but it's just kind of a fact of the matter versus ultrasound. And it's also, it's also the least accurate way of doing a biopsy because you don't actually see like what you're biopsying. You're kind of putting your needle where you want it to be. The patient has to go in for a scan, they come back out and you're kind of like hoping that the patient hasn't moved and everything is in the same place when you take your biopsy versus on ultrasound, I can see exactly where my needle is going and I can like take the biopsy with, I can literally image it at the same time. So it's much more accurate. So in our patient, for instance, you know, she had a, a palpable mass. And so she actually underwent a diagnostic mammogram right from the get-go. Now, based on what you just said, you know, if an ultrasound is such a good technique to, you know, be able to get a biopsy, do you even have to do the mammogram or can you use the imaging that you've seen on ultrasound just to go after the sample? Because inevitably, at least what it maybe it might be that this patient's going to need a biopsy anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. There are times when we will skip the mammogram and go straight to ultrasound. So when we do a diagnostic mammogram, it's usually to see if the thing will go away, right? Like we want to make it go away. We want the patient to not have anything. If it's a definite mass and you know it's not going away. It's a real mass. There are times when we'll definitely just skip the mammogram and go straight to ultrasound. It's not a convention. Like if you read, so the BIRADS actually has a manual. It's like a, this thick book. And I think per the manual, you are supposed to do a diagnostic mammogram and the ultrasound. But there are definitely times when we feel like you just, you can skip it, right? Like we've already seen it on the original mammogram. We don't need to do it again. So we can skip it. And that's okay. In certain cases, it's okay to skip it. Knowing that after the patient has the biopsy, 
we'll place a marker and then we're going to do a post biopsy mammogram, which is not diagnostic. It's just to see where the marker clip is, but that can also give you some idea of like what we're looking at. The main thing is having some sort of mammogram to make sure we know what it looks like mammographically so that when we are doing further imaging, we know what we're looking at. But there are definitely times we skip the mammogram. You don't always need it. So you're just trying to make sure you have some sort of baseline before any future intervention is planned. Yeah. We always want to make sure that we have, like in, in breast imaging, mam- like the mammogram is your it's your CT scan, you know, it's your chest x-ray. Like it's, we need that. That's how we do all of our imaging. But there are definitely times when you, we skip the diagnostic part of it. When we talk about getting this biopsy, and let's say we're doing an ultrasound-guided biopsy, so we have this BIRAD spore lesion like in our patient. She comes in for ultrasound. You see, you see that mass on ultrasound. You're going to get that core biopsy to get a little more tissue. So from the oncology perspective, we like core biopsies more than FNAs because we get more tissue. We can know their ERPR status, their HER2 status, get fish, all of those things, get the grade. All the things are really important for us and the surgeons to treat, but You've mentioned a marker clip placement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you do that? Yeah. So the marker clip is really important. Number one, it shows us where we took the biopsy from, right? Like that's where, that's how I mark that I've taken the biopsy. So here's the thing. There are times when all this is going to end up being benign. We're going to be surprised it's benign. And next year, when she comes back for her annual mammogram, another radiologist might look at it and be like, hey, that looks suspicious. We need to biopsy it. And the marker clip tells that radiologist that it's been biopsied, it's benign, don't go after it again. So in that sense, it's good to have that marker there when it's benign. When it's malignant, it's equally as important, if not more important to have that marker there because there's no way if, so this patient has a palpable mass, which the surgeon might be able to do it, do surgery based on that. But there are so many times when we're diagnosing cancers that are three millimeters, five millimeters, and they're not going to be palpable. And the surgeon doesn't have a way of knowing where to do the surgery because the margins are pretty small in a lumpectomy, right? So you're not taking out a huge portion of the breast. And there's no way for the surgeon to know exactly which part of the breast that you're supposed to take out. So the marker becomes very important because we do something called localization prior to surgery, where you can put in a radiofrequency marker or a radioactive marker, something where the surgeon can kind of get a signal from that and figure out exactly where to do the surgery. And so that marker becomes important so that we can localize it with a a second seed essentially, and then the surgeon can track it and do surgery in the exact right place. That's really cool. I mean, that concept, I just, I think it's, it's so cool. And it's, it sounds like such a simple intervention in the sense that, you know, you guys are just using common sense, like you're helping to identify the area, not creating more work for somebody down the road. That's, that's, that's awesome. They're actually making some seeds or some preoperative localizers that can be left in the breast like indefinitely so that you can use that instead of a biopsy marker. And that way the patient doesn't have to come back for a second procedure. There's a lot of cool stuff on the horizon too. That's awesome. All right. So let's say switch gears for a little bit. And let's say that a patient had a screening mammogram and they had a BIRAD zero. And you you talked about how that's an incomplete picture that we need to do something more. We don't know exactly what's going on with this patient. So in that case, do you get an MRI or do you do other things? How do you, what do you do in that case? Yeah. So I will say that actually in the BIRADS manual, there's a really set algorithm for what we do. So if a patient has a mask, or we see something on a mammogram that's called an asymmetry or a focal asymmetry, that patient comes back for 
mammogram plus ultrasound. That's like, that is the algorithm. If a patient has calcifications, they come back for what's called magnification views, where we magnify those calcifications so we can see them better and classify them, characterize them, I should say. And the MRI really just comes into play when there's really no other option. Like we only see it on a contrast enhanced mammogram, which is a new technology where you're using contrast to kind of supplement a mammogram, or it's a problem solving tool. But as I mentioned earlier, MRIs are great because they're very sensitive. They pick up lots of stuff, but they also muddy the waters a little bit and can make anything look bad. And you end up doing a lot of MRI biopsies that end up being benign. So we try to avoid doing MRI unless we really need it because the patient will end up going through more intervention inevitably. So we save those for specific scenarios. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, you don't want to use the most sensitive thing and over biopsy these patients who may not need it and all the psychological stress that could be associated with that. One of the other things that patients ask me, so let's say, again, we have a patient that comes to us and talks to us and they say, hey, what about tomosynthesis imaging or breast tomosynthesis? Can you tell us exactly what that means? Because honestly, I have no idea. There are certain things that you see only on tomosynthesis that you would not originally see on a 2D mammogram. And when I say 2D, that means not 3D. So we, we call it 2D for just a single view and then 3D for tomosynthesis. So a cyst, for example, is a mass and on a 2D, it might look like, you know, it's a mass. I can't characterize it. I have to call the patient back. But on a tomosynthesis, you'll be able to slice through it and see that it's very circumscribed. It's very round. It doesn't look suspicious. And while the patient might have to come back just to prove it, if we see it again getting bigger or something, we will know that it's a cyst and we don't really need to keep following it, for example. So tomosynthesis gives us a lot more information than just a single 2D mammogram. Now, it's good because it sees things like architectural distortion. So you'll see speculation within a mass really well. You'll see breast tissue being pulled a lot better than you would see on just a single view because you can actually kind of scroll through it and see that distortion. And so it actually does end up calling back more cancers, which is a good thing. And it also lowers a recall rate. So it lowers the need for me to call back something that I think looks totally benign on a tomosynthesis. So it's kind of twofold. So if I were a patient who was getting my annual screening, I would get tomosynthesis because that way, the radiologist has all the information that they possibly could get Like while I'm already there. I can understand why it is, it is actually more radiation if you're doing both a 2D and a 3D. So I can see why patients don't do it. But if I were a patient, I would want my radiologist to have the most information. So I definitely would get both. That's really helpful. And that's a great point. We'll briefly mention it. And we'll put a link to this in our show notes. There there was this PROSPER consortium study that showed that tomosynthesis combined with digital mammogram improved invasive cancer detection rates from like three per thousand to four per thousand. So, you know, a, a small increase in benefit. But from what you're saying, you know, you're just you're having more information that may be better able to characterize what we're looking at. And so, you know, it's it's good to hear that, you know, despite a study suggesting that there's only a small benefit, when we think about this more clinically on a day-to-day basis, perhaps there's more utility in using this sort of uh, imaging modality. Exactly. When you think about it at the patient level, I think that it's so helpful to have tomosynthesis. I mean, now it's to the point where we'll read a mammogram and it'll be like, we'll be like, oh wait, there's no tomosynthesis. And then we'll be so upset because we could have easily like 
seen something or not seen something because of it. And it's like, it's, it makes us, our, our radiology heart sad when someone doesn't have it because it does help us so much. And the other point is all these papers and trials are great, but until you're that one person in 1000 whose cancer was detected, like it's hard to, it's hard to relate this on a personal level. I feel like, because that's how I feel about a lot of these trials is just like, until you're that one person, you might feel like, oh yeah, it's only a very small incremental increase, but it does have big value at the end of the day. That's such a good reminder. Most definitely such a good reminder. Vivek, can you tell us a little bit more about what our patient, you know, what our biopsy results showed, and then maybe we can talk about where we go from here? Yeah. So our patient ended up getting an ultrasound guided biopsy, a core biopsy. So remember, anybody looking at trying to get a biopsy for, for oncologists, if we can, we like we like the core, we like our tissue. And this was consistent with an invasive ductal mammary carcinoma that was ERPR positive by IHC and HER2 3 plus by IHC. So she had an ERPR positive, HER2 positive, invasive ductal carcinoma. We'll discuss more details on things like this and things like special type in our future episodes, but just for everybody to know here, she had this diagnosis of breast cancer. So one of the things that's really important to optimize treatment planning is we think about axillary staging. And what we do in these patients is we do a clinical exam and look for palpable axillary lymphadenopathy. And this is critical because it will really tell us, you know, it can dictate what kind of neoadjuvant therapy we give patients in some cases. And it will definitely dictate whether we do something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy or think about an axillary lymph node dissection. We have some episodes with surgeons coming up and we'll talk about that with them. But I want to talk about it from the radiology perspective. So when we have a palpable lymph node and we say, hey, can you all get a biopsy of it? What exactly, what's the process that goes through that? And then the second question I have, if we got something like an MRI, so let's say that the surgeon wanted an MRI, they were thinking about lumpectomy and they're worried about some multifocal lesion or something like that. And we got an MRI. Does the MRI characterize axillary lymph nodes? Yeah. So when a patient comes to us because there's clinical suspicion of palpable nodes or you're worried about the lymph nodes, what they'll have is an axillary ultrasound. So it's the exact same thing as a breast ultrasound, but we just scan the axilla and we look for any abnormal lymph nodes. And for us, things that make lymph nodes abnormal are cortical thickness over like two to three millimeters, really two millimeters, but usually really abnormal nodes are like five or six millimeters. So they're usually well over that threshold. And we look for things like losing that reniform shape, like they become round, they're much more vascular, they lose their fatty hyaline. And you can easily see all of those things on ultrasound. So ultrasound is our go-to for looking at lymph nodes. You can sometimes see them on mammogram. When you do an MLO view, you might catch a couple of lymph nodes in the axillary tail, but just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. It just means they may not have been positioned. So we don't use mammogram to assess axillary lymph nodes. So if you send us a patient, we're going to do an an axillary ultrasound. And then from there, we'll recommend a biopsy if they look suspicious. That's really how it goes. As far as MRI, yes, MRI always looks at the axillary lymph nodes because it goes all the way up to like the thoracic inlet. So you'll see all of the axillary lymph nodes in an MRI. You also see internal mammary lymph nodes, which you don't see on any other imaging. So that can be helpful because breast cancer can spread to your internal mammary chain. But yes, we always scan through the axilla on MRI and they do look abnormal even on MRI. So we can, we often recommend axillary ultrasound even after an MRI. Can I ask what may be a silly question? So, so Vivek mentioned sending a patient to you all 
to assess uh, if there's palpable uh, lymph nodes. What if someone doesn't have palpable lymph nodes? Then is there any assessment of the axillary lymph nodes or no? That's really interesting because that is totally specific to your institution. Different surgeons have different preferences about that. So at one place, we might automatically scan the axilla if we see something suspicious in the breast and we just add it kind of to the exam. And then other places, we don't scan it at all. Like no matter what, you don't scan it. So it just depends on the surgeons. Usually it's the surgeons who are dictating how we practice this. And so it's actually not radiology specific, it's institution specific. And you might go like from one job to another and they will have a totally different practice about how they scan the axilla. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like everything in, in oncology. I feel like there's so many different avenues you can go down and there's no there's no true one right answer. You know, there's a lot of different ways to to practice medicine and to treat our patients. And the, the last thing I want to do before we wrap up today is ask you the same question. So you placed the clip when you did that initial breast biopsy. Are you doing the same thing here so the surgeon can find that node to look for like a pathologic CR? That is also institution specific, surprisingly. So at some places, we'll place a clip just like we would in the breast. My dad's a radiologist too. And where he practices, they put a clip in every axillary lymph node biopsy for the exact reason. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, I think we've, we've taken up enough of your, of your time today. So for, for all of our listeners, the reason why Ronick has been a little bit intermittent through this episode, his whole recording setup just totally messed up. And Yash has been sitting here like, are these, do these guys have their stuff together at all? Like, do they know what they're doing? But anyway, we do. Ronick's in the back. He can't hear any of this, which is even the, the best part about all this. So, you know, hey, whatever. We, we got through it. So Yasha, thank you so much for doing this again. This was fantastic. And is there anything that one final word from you, anything you want to tell our listeners or anyone who's listening to the show? Yeah. I mean, I just want to say that, you know, the breast radiologists, we are friendly. We don't bite. And we love to consult with our like colleagues about all of these cases. We spend all day consulting with people about what we're doing. We ask everyone for second opinions and we get a lot of surgeons that come over, but we almost never get an oncologist. So please come over and talk to us and just spend like 10 minutes seeing what our setup is like, because we would love to show you a little bit about what we do. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I know for sure I'm going to do it. I mean, I, I loved preparing for this episode and, and talking. I've learned a lot today. And so we're, we're going to do it. We're starting a new trend here. We're starting a new trend. It's going to be a thing. So whoever listens to the fellow on call, we recommend hanging out with your best radiologist, especially, I mean, it is so interesting and fascinating. And, you know, we do take care of a lot of patients who we have to think about what are we going to order now? And you guys probably see, why did that oncologist order a diagnostic mammogram? I'm, I'm sure that happens, but hopefully it doesn't happen a lot, but I'm sure it does. But thank you again for, for joining us and, and have a great rest of your night. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks, Yasha. Take care. We'll see you around.